This episode was made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. For more information, please visit patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 155. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm your host, Chris Lester. You can find more of my work at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. I'm back from Toronto this week, ready to bring you a fresh installment of my fiction and update you on my writing progress. So let's get started with this week's story. Today I'm bringing you Chapter 13 of my Metamore City novel, The Lost and the Least. If you're new to the show, go back to Episode 143 to hear this story from the beginning. The following recap will contain spoilers. Also, this episode contains some explicit sexual content, so if you're listening with children around, you may want to put in the earbuds for this one. MCPD medical examiner Morgan Drowling has seen more than her share of darkness. Three years ago, Morgan was turned into a vampire by her abusive boyfriend, the brutal criminal enforcer known as Braddock. Morgan was controlled in secret for months by Braddock and his master, the vampire prince Malcolm Ardvalos, who used her to spy on the police and make evidence disappear. Morgan was rescued through the efforts of her friend, police detective Catherine Catane, and the Lightbringer field commander Janus Starson, who destroyed Braddock when he resisted arrest. Braddock's death freed Morgan from his psychic domination, and ever since, Morgan has hungered for payback against Malcolm and his criminal syndicate. About two months ago, in the novel Things Unseen, Morgan again ran afoul of Malcolm's plans, when he sent a freelance runner to steal some autopsy records from Morgan's office. The runner was an androgyne named Evan and Ava Selindi, who charmed their way into Morgan's bed in the guise of an imperial health official. Selindi's male persona, Evan, was a sexual submissive, while their female half, Ava, was a sexual dominant. Together, they filled a set of emotional needs that Morgan had been unable to fully satisfy since leaving the hierarchy of the Vampire Syndicate. Even after realizing how Selindi had tricked her, the experience lingered in Morgan's mind. Soon after the encounter with Selindi, Morgan was approached by an old childhood friend in the story Just Coffee. The friend, Amelie Grace, had also been turned into a vampire. Like Morgan, her sire had been killed— leaving Amelie in control of her free will once more. For years, Amelie has served under Malcolm as head priestess of the Church of Eternal Brotherhood, the religion that ties vampire society together. Needless to say, Morgan was suspicious of Amelie's motives for setting up a meeting. But Amelie surprised Morgan. She told her that she was part of an organization called The White, a loose network of independent resistance cells bound together by their hatred of Malcolm Ardvalos. The White's objective is to destroy Malcolm and tear down his criminal empire, and Amelie wanted Morgan to join. After some initial hesitation, Morgan agreed, with the condition that Morgan would not break the law, and that she and Amelie would work to keep innocent civilians out of the line of fire. Earlier this afternoon, Morgan uncovered evidence of a new threat to the city— Someone has been killing people on street level, 
draining their blood and faking evidence that would make the deaths look like vampire attacks. Morgan can't tell whether the killer is doing this for fetishistic reasons or as part of some black magic ritual. But either way, there seems to be a serial killer on the loose. The Lost and the Least A novel of Metamore City Written and read by Chris Lester Chapter 13, Saturday, May 19th. Morgan left work shortly after midnight and arrived at her apartment complex a little before 1 a.m. She was no longer capable of becoming physically tired, not unless she was deprived of blood for a long time, but the mental strain of a night's work still took its toll. The specter of a possible serial killer stalking Metamore only made things worse. How long has this been going on? How long did we miss it? The lift doors opened on her floor, and immediately her senses kicked into high alert. There was a familiar scent on the air, an expensive cologne with notes of orange blossom, jasmine, and musk. It was neither distinctly masculine nor feminine, but it spoke to Morgan of power, sophistication, and charm. Oh, bloody hells, she muttered. She went to her apartment and found it locked, but with a light coming from under the door. She unlocked it, took a deep breath she didn't actually need, and went inside. The smell of the cologne was stronger here, and joined by the vanilla spice scent of her bath salts. The light was on in the bathroom, and the stereo played one of her old albums, a classic crooner from about sixty years ago. The sound of the man's voice was like lambskin stroking her whole body. Somehow it made her relaxed and horny at the same time. A voice came from the bathroom. Morgan, is that you, pet? It was a woman's voice, and one Morgan knew all too well. Damn it, not now. Not when I haven't had the chance to process this fresh horror I've uncovered. Morgan. The voice held a tone of warning now. It sent a shudder down Morgan's spine. It's me, she said. Well, come here and give us a kiss, love. Her resistance crumbling, Morgan obeyed. Entering the bathroom, she found a vision of female perfection lying in the extra-large tub. Her large, beautiful breasts were buoyed up by the water, tempting Morgan with their long and succulent nipples. Tribal-looking tattoos covered her muscular abdomen, totemic spells of strength, speed, and protection, Morgan knew, etched on her body by a Luton shaman. Her long hair, like ringlets of molten gold, spilled out across the cushioned headrest and over the edge of the tub. She lifted one long, shapely, and completely hairless leg out of the water, holding it aloft as Morgan approached. Her eyes opened— two orbs of brilliant, spell-sculpted amethyst. She gazed at Morgan without fear, her full, delicious lips parting in a mischievous smile. Morgan lowered her eyes. She stepped forward and took the woman's foot between her hands, caressing the arch, the bridge, the ankle. She brushed her cheek against it, then placed her lips to the sole and kissed it. 
Good girl, Eva Selindy purred. Morgan closed her eyes as the thrill of those words shot through her body and straight down to her groin. Thank you, ma'am, she whispered. Ava nudged Morgan's cheek with her foot, a push too gentle to be called a kick. Take off your clothes, Pitt. I want to see you. Morgan hastened to obey. She unbuttoned her dress shirt and let it fall, then unfastened her pants and pushed them down, turning around in the process so Ava would get a nice, full view of her ass. She reached back and unhooked her bra, then pulled the straps down from first one shoulder, then the other. She let the bra fall away and covered her breasts with one hand, then looked back over her shoulder and smiled. Ava's eyes were wide and dilated, watching her intently. Morgan turned away again, bent at the waist, and slowly slid her panties down to the floor. She stepped out of them and turned around, waiting. You are ravishing as always, my dear, Ava said. She extended her hand toward Morgan. Come, join me. The commanding tone in her voice brooked no argument. Morgan took her hand and stepped into the tub. Ava spread her legs wide, bracing her feet on the sides of the tub, and Morgan settled down into the perfumed water, seating herself between them. Ava's sex tempted Morgan, the hairless folds spread open before her, but she did not lean forward for a taste. Ava had not yet commanded it. The beautiful runner smiled again at Morgan from the opposite end of the tub. She raised one foot and placed it against Morgan's chest, pushing her lightly back against the porcelain wall. Morgan waited, open, submissive. Ava ran the foot over one breast, grabbing Morgan's nipple between her toes and pinching it hard. Morgan gasped, but said nothing. Are you happy to see me, Pitt? Ava asked lightly. Yes, ma'am. Really? Ava's tone was still playful, but there was something sharp underneath it. You didn't seem happy when you came home. Did I surprise you? Yes, ma'am, Morgan said softly. I... I wasn't expecting you tonight. Did you forget that our agreement lets me come here as I wish? No, ma'am, I just... Morgan hesitated. Out with it, Pet. The voice was commanding, but surprisingly gentle. Tell me what's troubling you. Morgan took another deep breath. She wondered when her body would stop doing that by reflex. I learned something deeply disturbing at work today, she admitted. Several autopsies have been performed incorrectly. Important evidence was missed. By you? Ava asked. No, ma'am. By my deputies. But they are my responsibility, so ultimately the blame falls to me. She lowered her eyes again. I'm afraid that people may have died who needn't have, had I caught the mistake sooner. Ah. Ava's foot caressed her cheek. Morgan leaned in to the touch, cradling the foot in her hands. As hard as it may sometimes be to remember, you are a mere mortal, Ava said. Becoming a vampire has not made you any less fallible. You will miss things. You will make mistakes. You want a machine, Pitt. That is your strength and your weakness. I know, ma'am, 
Morgan said. But I don't care for this way of being reminded. No one does, Ava said soberly. But life never asks for our opinion. No, ma'am. Ava's foot traced its way down Morgan's body, over her chest and abdomen, coming to rest between Morgan's legs. I think, Ava said, that you need to take your mind off of work for a while. Her big toe stroked over the folds of Morgan's vulva, then traced light circles around her clit. Morgan closed her eyes and moaned. How does that sound, Pitt? It sounds... Morgan's breath came out of her in a rush, as Ava's big toe thrust up inside her. It sounds wonderful, ma'am, she gasped. Oh, yes, Ava purred. She pumped her foot back and forth, driving the toe in and out of Morgan's pussy. Morgan gripped the sides of the tub and panted as Ava stoked her arousal higher and higher. Do you like that, Pet? Does that feel nice? Yes, ma'am, Morgan breathed. How about this? Ava pushed the big toe deep, then pinched Morgan's flesh between it and the second toe, squeezing hard on Morgan's clit and G-spot. Morgan cried out wordlessly as pleasure and pain ran through her together. Oh, yes, you liked that, Ava said. She did it again. Morgan gritted her teeth and slapped her hands against the sides of the tub. She could feel the first warning tingles of her approaching orgasm. Ava stopped then, slipping the toe out of Morgan and putting her foot up on the side of the tub. Morgan's impending climax slipped away, leaving her unbearably horny and frustrated. Ava lifted her hips, presenting her sex to Morgan. She grinned at Morgan from between her spread legs. Time for your supper, Pitt. Morgan did not hesitate. She scooted herself forward until Ava's hips were directly above her own breasts. She cupped Ava's buttocks in both hands, lifting them up, and lowered her face to Ava's beautiful pussy. Every part of it was a delight to her, and she licked, nibbled, and sucked with abandon. Ava's juices flowed freely, and Morgan lapped them up, sweetness and musk mixing with acidic tang and salty sweat. Ava panted, then moaned, then bucked her hips and screamed, and both of them were in heaven. Morgan coaxed her mistress to three orgasms in succession. Then Ava, gasping, seized Morgan's hair in both hands and hauled her up the length of her body to meet her lips. Their bodies wrapped together in a tangle of limbs, the water sloshing around them as their tongues wrestled one another. One of Ava's hands found Morgan's pussy and sent two fingers thrusting inside her, while her thumb rubbed delicious circles around Morgan's clit. Morgan began grinding her hips in time with Ava's strokes, riding her fingers like a cock. Ava kissed and nibbled at the sensitive places on Morgan's neck, especially around the old, faded bite marks where Braddock had turned her. The feeling of her teeth on Morgan's throat brought back a flood of old, complicated memories, good and bad, but none of them mattered now. She was Ava's, and Ava was here, and that was enough. Morgan cried out her climax and collapsed, shuddering, on top of Ava. Ava kissed her again, 
tenderly, and brushed her long fingers through Morgan's raven-black hair. Morgan rested her head on Ava's chest and closed her eyes, content. After a while, Ava guided her out of the tub and over to the bedroom. Morgan put on the clothes Ava chose for her, a red silk kimono that Morgan hadn't worn since the night a very special young woman had put it on after her own bath. Morgan could still smell Kelly's scent on it eight months later, and it triggered bittersweet thoughts of their night together. That's one I saved, at least, Morgan thought. I hope she's all right. Ava cupped Morgan's chin in her hand and ran her thumb over her jaw. Everything all right, Pitt? Morgan smiled. Just memories. Good ones. Mostly. Ava nodded. I got your message about dinner tomorrow. I didn't have anything scheduled between now and then anyway, so I thought, why not make it a sleepover? I'm glad you came, Morgan admitted. Now, anyway. I needed it after today. Ava hugged her, putting her hand tenderly and possessively over the back of Morgan's head. You're most welcome. Now then, have you eaten anything? Morgan nodded against her chest. Bag lunch, she said, by which she meant a liter of blood from the hospital stores. She preferred fresh when she could get it, but she hadn't had the mental energy to go hunting after work. All right, let's get in bed and you can tell me all about your day. Snuggled up against Ava under the covers, Morgan found it easier to talk about the things she had seen and deduced. That's very odd, Ava said when she had finished. Odd? Morgan asked. I would say ghastly, or horrifying, but odd? She shook her head. If you were doing black magic in this city, and you wanted to get away with it, you would do all the things the killer has been doing. You'd go after people unlikely to be missed, you'd dispose of the bodies in out-of-the-way places, and you'd find a scapegoat to deflect suspicion. As diabolical as it is, it's all rational. Well, yes, you're right about that. Ava admitted. What I mean is that the choice of scapegoat is odd. The syndicate is very serious about protecting the vampire reputation in this city. Feral vampires may kill people, but civilized vampires aren't supposed to. Your killer, whoever they are, didn't make this look like a feral vamp attack. Which means they'll be drawing the attention of the syndicate to their activities, Morgan said, following the train of logic. Exactly. The street-level mage gangs would never risk bringing the wrath of the syndicate down on their heads. They're too small, too disorganized. No matter what kind of arcane power they have, the vamps would wipe them out. So, who's out there that hates the vampires enough to make them look bad, and is strong enough or stupid enough to risk doing it? Morgan felt her whole body freeze up. Her guts would have roiled if they still could. Oh, no. Ava noticed. What's wrong, Pitt? Morgan considered her words carefully. For the last few months, she had been in communication with a small group of unbound vampires, individuals whose sires had been killed and who were thus freed from the chains of dominance and submission that formed the syndicate hierarchy. Together they formed one cell in a large, diffuse network of operatives, which was dedicated to a single goal, destroying Malcolm Ardvalos, 
the prince of the vampire syndicate in Metamore City. Morgan's recruiter had told her that the individual cells operated independently, connected only by a double-blind system of dead drops. Some cells were made of other unbound vampires, but most were mortals. Morgan guessed that anyone who would take such a risk must have had their life destroyed by Malcolm and his cronies. That was the sort of thing that could make a person desperate. Maybe even desperate enough to turn to black magic. Have you heard anything about the syndicate having a new competitor on the street? Morgan asked. Anyone trying to steal their territory or attack their operations? Ava shrugged. Well, there's the Psy Collective, of course. Not the Teeps, Morgan said. This is something else. She looked up at Ava. The blonde woman was frowning, deep in thought. Now that you mention it, it's nothing I can put a finger on. But the vamps have sent me to investigate a number of cases where their operations went sideways. A smuggler loses a shipment, a warehouse is bombed, a drug cache is robbed, that sort of thing. Now, vamps are always scheming against each other, jockeying for position in the syndicate, so this sort of chicanery happens all the time. Except that lately, my investigations keep leading me outside the syndicate. Outside? To where? Morgan asked. Ava made an exasperated noise. To nowhere. Grubby little ground-level operatives who didn't seem to know anything. If they weren't acting alone, then whoever was directing them did a damned fine job of covering their tracks. But you think they were being directed? I don't see how anything else explains it, Ava said. The whole thing has the feel of some kind of... of terrorist insurgency. Morgan scoffed. Can you call people terrorists when their target is an organized crime ring? If they've graduated to murdering innocent civilians for black magic, I'd say they've earned the title, Ava said darkly. Morgan winced. She had agreed to help Amelie with her operations against Malcolm, because Amelie had promised to keep civilians out of the line of fire. But she had also warned Morgan that she could not control the actions of the other cells— the decentralized nature of the conspiracy meant that it was very easy for a cell to go rogue. If that was what had happened here, Morgan would need to pass the word back up the chain in the hope that one of her superiors could do something to correct the problem. Well, I'm working on a report for special investigations, Morgan said. I was planning on talking to Kate tomorrow about taking a look at the bodies. Maybe she can help us connect the dots on the magic side of things. I'd like very much to know what these bastards are after. She looked up at Ava again. If you learn anything on your end, will you let me know? Ava smiled mischievously. Are you suggesting an alliance between the police and the syndicate? Blood and ashes, no, Morgan said. I'm just saying you and I should share information. What we do with it is our own business. Anyway, you still owe me for those autopsy reports. Ava chuckled. I think I gave you something of more than equal value for those. She gripped the hair at the base of Morgan's neck and pulled back roughly on her head. Morgan gasped, and Ava covered her mouth with her own. Morgan felt her whole body relax under Ava's commanding grip as her mouth opened willingly to Ava's probing tongue. Dear gods, how does she do this to me? 
Morgan had only known Ava for the better part of a month, but the runner dominated her so easily, like every one of Morgan's buttons was exposed to her. Even more amazingly, Ava did it all without the supernatural compulsions that Morgan's vampire masters had depended on. To be sure, Ava had used her totemic strength enhancement on that first night they spent together, and power like that was definitely a turn-on for Morgan. But Ava was using no such magic now, only a protection enchantment that shielded her from the effects of a vampire's gaze. Her ability to be dominant, to take command of another's body, that was all her. And Morgan found it irresistible. Ava broke the kiss and settled back into position behind Morgan. She stroked her fingers lightly up and down Morgan's alabaster skin. You are a delight, my pet, Ava whispered in her ear, then kissed the back of her neck. Morgan relaxed into her, closing her eyes. So are you, she murmured. And that's the end of chapter 13. Come back next time for chapter 14, when Will and Callie go hunting for some missing street people. Harlan Ellison said, The only thing worth writing about is people. People. Human beings. Men and women whose individuality must be created, line by line, insight by insight, there is no nobler chore in the universe than holding up the mirror of reality and turning it slightly, so we have a new and different perception of the commonplace, the everyday, the normal, the obvious. People are reflected in the glass. The fantasy situation into which you thrust them is the mirror itself, and what we are shown should illuminate and alter our perception of the world around us. Harlan left us on June 28th, at the age of 84. He was a complicated, brilliant, and difficult man, a hero to some and a monster to others. But in this, I can say without hesitation that I think he was right. So let's take a look at how I've been crafting my mirrors. Here's your weekly writing report. I wrote 2,691 words this week, over the course of 6.75 hours, for an average writing speed of 399 words per hour. I wrote on 6 out of 7 days this week. Operation Ibex, my Artax adventure story, is now over 25,000 words. I think I'm a little over half done, so I'm estimating this will finish up at about 40,000 words, just over the line to be considered a short novel. Looking back on the month of June, I wrote a total of 8,449 words in 14 days, averaging 604 words per day. I spent a total of 12.5 hours writing last month. That's still nowhere near what I was regularly achieving last year, but it is the highest writing output I've achieved since November. Also, there were only five days in June when I didn't work on either writing or podcasting, which is something I haven't achieved since January. June was a step in the right direction, and the closest I've gotten in a long time to having an unbroken chain for an entire month. Compared to April, since I didn't really write much of anything in May, my word count increased by 86%, and my writing time increased by 79%. 
Over on the Patreon feed, we have four new patrons. Say hello to Dave, Paul, Jenny, and Jason. In addition, Ben Clifford has given us his latest piece of bonus art. This one shows Kate at the racetrack in Chapter 2 of The Lost and the Least. I'm also excited to announce that a second artist is joining our team. Carol Foote does a variety of visual arts, including animation, comics, and watercolors. She's going to be taking assignments on alternating months with Ben, so that we can bring you bonus art more frequently. In the meantime, you can check out some of her work at her website, cafoo.carbonmade.com. All of our bonus art is exclusive to patrons of the Patreon campaign, so if you want to see them, head on over to patreon.com slash author Chris Lester and make a pledge today. And now, the feedback. Rob Morse writes, Hi, Chris. I get it. You want a life, so you can't give us stories as fast as we want them. I am grateful and impatient for each episode. Thank you for the writing you do squeeze out of your life in order to bring us this story week by week. Time is as precious to a writer as blood is precious to a vampire. You're always looking for the next free hour. I'm hoping that the characters have spoken to others as much as they have spoken to me. Is there a hidden treasure of MC fanfiction hidden somewhere? Where have incomplete story arcs gone to die? Hi, Rob. There have been some Metamore City fanfiction pieces over the years. A few of them aired on the Metamore City podcast as special episodes. Two fans of the setting actually became official writers for Metamore City, Brian Watson, whose story Make-Believe appears in the Urban Legends collection, and Nobilis Reed, who has an entire book of his own Metamore City erotica stories, called Quicksilver Bridges. But I'm not aware of a large treasure trove of Metamore City fanfiction out there. As for incomplete story arcs, all I can say is, they're not dead, they're just resting. Many of the story arcs that were left hanging in the earlier books will be brought back again. As a matter of fact, several of them are getting tied into the lost and the least, so stay tuned. Jason writes, Hey Chris, have you thought of moving your podcast to subscription-based on Twitch? I heard an interesting podcast on Twitch and its business model. It is a more interactive platform, so for you it would be more like doing a live read each week. Plus there's the opportunity for a con-like real-time interactive component for your listeners, during the read in the chat room, and an opportunity for you to interact after. Hi, Jason. I must confess my ignorance here, because I basically know nothing about Twitch, except that it's a way to watch people play video games. I have done live readings for Metamore City before, using things like Google Hangouts and Facebook Live, and I'd be open to doing more of them in the future if there's interest. I don't see the regular podcast going that way, though. I want the recordings that I make for the podcast to be usable for my audiobooks, too, and a live recording just doesn't really lend itself to that. Plus, to be honest, it's really freaking hot in my recording studio at this time of the year, and nobody wants to watch me reading my book while I'm sweating in my skivvies. I appreciate the suggestion, though. Hey, Chris. It's Sarah Testarossa. I'm calling with some quick feedback on the latest episodes of The Lost and the Least. Actually, not quite the latest. I'm one chapter behind, but I just listened to the other three in the last couple days. Very quick reactions to some of the characters. Kate, 
stop being in denial. Come on, please. John, haha, your human side is showing, your human side is growing. And I really liked the kind of nods back to the story with Delilah. I didn't realize it had been that recent, so thank you for placing that in the chronology clearly here. Also, I forget how you pronounce different names pronounce Sanja, uh, but for that I'm like, oh, you poor, sweet, innocent child, you have no idea. Funny side thing, that actually made me think of, I've been listening to Guild of the Cowrie Catchers, finally, but the end of that scene where we meet her, I was thinking about, like, Silvio and kids like him, and I was just like, oh, poor little beans. Anyway. I think Lyle's adorable. Like, it's just like his little, like his ma'am kind of thing's the case. And she's like, oh. But anyway, stuff is getting interesting, er, because it was already interesting. But I, I mainly wanted to give my, my reactions to those three characters just because it's, ah. <laughs> um, anyway, so yeah, I'm going to listen to the next episode now. So take care. Wishing you well. Bye. Hi, Chris. Quick feedback on the latest episode of The Lost and the Least. I was really excited to see Jenna again because she was definitely a cool character to get to know a bit in Troubled Minds. So, yay, and she seems to be doing well for the most part. <laughs> um, so that's pretty cool. Two, I like the um, talking about the gang situation. First off, the description of the elders kind of protecting the community and then, you know, the youngsters when the elders aren't really in charge anymore or they've changed or whatever, the youngsters like just doing what they want. I'm close with someone who grew up in a ghetto in gang territory and said it was very safe there for quite a while because they were, you know, they were protected even if they weren't part of the gang. But then over time, as the younger people started to be in charge or whatever, it's like there was a loss of respect kind of thing where it was the way things were done changed. And so they weren't like just protecting the community as part of what they did as a gang. And that was without any vampire involvement. So I just thought that was interesting that, you know, I know someone who grew up in a situation like that, and you're, uh, I'm sure you did research or something, or maybe you know someone who had a similar situation, but I just thought it was cool that it's like, hey, this is a real-life thing. Anyway, the other thing that I like was, uh, I feel like there's a bit of dramatic irony here where if we've followed this universe so far, we know what the deal is with the white and so when they're saying about, you know, oh, they're competing with the Reds or, oh, they're having a turf war, I'm just thinking, oh, 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 oh no, not just that. It's like, they want to take them down. And just the fact that it's like they want to take them down, not just because it's like, oh, a rival gang, but it's because, no, the vampires have been fucking shit up so bad and they have had enough. So... Yeah, uh, I was just thinking about Just Coffee and, and how, when we learned more about the white during that. So, But, yeah, so this is exciting. It's really neat to see all of the threads coming together. And also, it's cool to hear that you're gaining traction again with Operation Ibex. Artact is one of my favorites, so that will be cool to uh, hear slash read whenever it's available. But until then, you know, best wishes for writing it, and I hope you have fun with it, and best wishes with the work, podcasting, writing, life balance. Yeah, hopefully things at work will calm down soon, because that is a lot of overtime. All right, you take care. Bye. Thanks, Sarah. As most of you know, I used to be a teacher at a progressive charter school in Oakland. 
While I was there, I was privileged to get to know some longtime members of Oakland's communities of color. It was from them that I learned about the deep history of the gangs in California, and how they had started as community defense organizations in places where the cops were either absent or too racist to be trusted. Just as the vampires corrupted the street gangs of Metamore, though, the drug trade corrupted the Oakland gangs, most of whom became co-opted by one of the big international criminal organizations. So while I can't claim first-hand knowledge of the things that Lorraine talks about in that episode, her story is closely based on the stories of people who saw it all happen. Thanks for calling in. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255-082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester, the fan group is Fans of Metamore City on Facebook, and my Mastodon handle is at author Chris Lester at wandering.shop. If you like this show, take a minute and leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. It makes a big difference in helping people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fresh new fiction. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2018 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org. <laughs>